to another episode of the More Than A Game podcast, the last one for the year. And a big thank you to those who have supported the podcast throughout the course of the year and a special thank you to all the guests that we've had on the podcast as well. And today I'm joined by another special guest, another one of uh, my favourite players growing up, a man who's had a great career in the NBL. He was the NBL MVP in his uh, breakout year, his first year, 1990, and also the scoring champion for that year as well. He holds the league record for the most assists in a game. He had stints with the Brisbane Bullets, the Townsville Suns, and the West Sydney Razorbacks, as well as stints in playing professionally in the Philippines and in England. And I'm speaking of none other than Derek Rucker. Derek, welcome to the More Than A Game podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Dan. I'm looking forward to having a nice little conversation with you. Absolutely, mate. It's a pleasure. And I'll start with the question I always ask my guests, and that is your genesis story or your beginning. And how did you uh, get into the sport of basketball? How did you come to play the game? And can you share a little bit about how uh, you came to play the sport of basketball? Well, um, I come from a sporting um, background. My dad was a professional athlete. Uh, He played in the NFL for many years. And I guess he was probably about halfway through his career when I kind of took a liking to football Mm -hmm. and I think he accurately predicted that I probably wasn't going to have the body shape or size (laughs) to be able to play in the National Football League. So I think at the age of six, he got me into basketball and uh, I just had a natural affinity for it. I really liked it. And I think uh, the family saw that I I like to work on my game Mm -hmm. and it kind of went from there, man. I just started playing at a pretty early age and I just always loved it. Mm. That's awesome, mate. I'm interested to know what the difference is uh, growing up in the States where you're born in Washington, I believe, as opposed yes. to Australia. I mean, I grew up in Sydney and, and love the sport here and, and played grassroots uh, basketball here, but very different to the States, I imagine, because uh, as opposed to the States, I was actually paid out for playing basketball by my mates growing up right. in a rugby league town, I guess, and um, yeah. it wasn't sort of what you did. It was more rugby league, soccer or whatever, so... I guess I was keen to know some of the the differences between, I guess, growing up where basketball's so big in the States. And uh, from your point of view, obviously a coach now as well and coaching young athletes, um, the difference between the grassroots in Australia as opposed to the States. There's just more opportunity to play the game, um, I think, in the United States, whether you go to a park uh, or you, I just think there's more access to courts over there. Uh, more leagues set up, more youth leagues set up. And I think that's just a function of time. Australia will get there. And I think also in America, everyone's accepting of the fact that that players play a lot of different sports. You know, I played everything when I was coming out. I played baseball, I played football, I played basketball. But basketball was the one that I had a real focus and and passion for. I really would have loved to have been able to play gridiron. You know, I, I, I grew up in football locker rooms. And, uh, you know, it was kind of the family business. But um, I think over time, Australia will get like that. But it is really hard. I'm sure, as you know, down in Sydney and Melbourne encounters the same problems. Like after school, it's very hard for kids to get access to a quality basketball court. You know, and it's not like in America where people are hooping outside on courts, you know, on a regular basis. So, you know, in time it will get there. But I think that's probably the primary dis- the difference between the two countries in basketball. That's interesting. And I think uh, part of that is obviously kids want to strive to play NBA, but also college basketball. The college system is huge yeah. in the States. And 
he had the opportunity to play that for Davidson College, I believe, and had a few years there. But um, from there, you stepped into professional basketball and obviously your first stint out here with the Brisbane Bullets. I'm interested to know, like back then, obviously the league wasn't as well known as it is today in the States. So how did that opportunity come about and what were the circumstances that led to you uh, finishing up with college and then making the move down under? Out of college, I was an undrafted free agent, so I got picked up by the Cavaliers, and I went to summer camp with Cleveland. Um, did really well. Uh, you know, had nice reviews coming out of my summer camp performance. I got a job down in Central America, and at, at that time, you know, in the late '80s, early '90s, it was very hard for small guards to get opportunities. The game was played differently than it is now. And um, I had limited opportunities. I went down to El Salvador. That was my first, my first professional job. Um, I did well there. And I was MVP and scoring champ. My team won the championship. And then out of nowhere, I got a call from an, an agent and a former coach, Dave Atkins. And he said that the Bullets were looking for uh, a point guard. And that head coach, Brian Curl, was coming over with the team. They were touring uh, the United States, I think, around Thanksgiving of 1989. Yeah. And uh, I'd have to trial and play well on that tour to make the team. And, um, you know, as fate would have it, I did a good job on that tour. They liked me. And I was picked up and I started, I uh, flew over, I think, in February of 1990 to Brisbane and uh, kind of went from there. I had a good first season and, you know, it was the beginning of a, a very fruitful and prosperous career for me here. Yeah, you obviously enjoyed the the lifestyle down here and the opportunity you had, no doubt. Yeah, probably enjoyed the lifestyle a little bit too much at time, <laughs> but it was um, it was a great time to be a pro athlete in Australia. You know, it was before cell phones and everybody in mm. your business. It was um, it was definitely a different era, and I'm very pleased that I, I that I lived through it then instead of trying to deal with what the athletes of today have to deal with. Absolutely. Um, you talk a bit about being an import and coming into the country. Like obviously now it's sort of like a destination before the NBA for players and you know, it's yeah. where imports come to play in the NBL. But I guess back then it wasn't, as I said, as, uh, as big overseas. So was there a huge culture shock or transition? Can you give us a bit of insight into what it was like for imports coming in from the States back then in those early years? There was a lot of pressure. You know, you had to perform. You had to put numbers up. Um, it was very, um, it was very rare for an import to come in to a situation where they were like playing a role. You know, where you could get ten points and still retain your job. You know, I'd probably say if you had ten points in back-to-back -back games, if you were not cut, you were going to get cut the third game if you produced those types of numbers. I think it was a lot more, a lot more cutthroat. And, you know, there are only two imports, but everybody pretty much had really good imports. Um, you know, in terms of its relationship to the NBA, the people in the industry, those that were really good in America and the NBA were aware of the strength of the Australian League even back then. Um, and from, you know, there were guys that, that got short-term contracts out of it. Ricky Grace went back mm. and played in the NBA. Doug Overton made a nice career out of from his stint over here. Um, I went back and continued to try and compete for NBA spots in the summer. So, you know, this isn't necessarily a new thing um, in terms of the NBA being aware of the strength of the Australian League. I think it's just probably a bit more publicized now. And now these guys see it at a younger age, you know, you can come over out of high school, you can come over as a 20 year old, as opposed to, you know, a 23 or a 25 year old play well, 
improve your merit and, and show that you have what it takes to play in the NBA. Mm, absolutely. And obviously you hit the ground running, as I said, and, um, you know, NBL MVP scoring champion. Um, yeah, obviously made your mark and I'll, I'll go off track here a little bit with my questions yeah. because it got me thinking what, uh, well, you know, I was researching your career for the, uh, the podcast today. You've seen guys like Ricky Grace and also Darren McDonald. They suited up for the Boomers um, at one occasion. I was just interested to know, was there ever a chance, like you've been in the country for so long, did you yes. ever think of making that step or trying to be naturalised to play for the Boomers? Or I reckon it would so I was naturalised in 19, I think it was 1999 I was naturalised and I got my Australian okay. citizenship. So yeah. I was a part of the Boomers preparation. I was in the, the, the camp in the lead up to Sydney 2000. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I think I went to two or three camps. Obviously, I didn't make the team. Uh, Ricky Grace took that naturalized spot. Um, the final camp I went to, um, you know, it was great. It was it was tremendous getting to play with those guys, obviously with Andrew Gaze, Shane Hill, Mark Bradkey, Vlahoff, you know, uh, Ricky, uh, Sam McKinnon, there's Tony Ronaldson, you know, these are, this, it was a very strong team. And, um, you know, one of the great things was I was a shadow team member. So we had access, we had early access to a lot of the Olympic ticketing. So I was able to get a lot of tickets to great events. And uh, my dad came over and we had a really great time. And obviously the boomers did well at that Olympic games, finishing fourth. Mm. Um, but so, yeah, so I, I've been through the system. I know what the guys go, go through. I'm, you know, I wasn't deeply entrenched in it, but I got enough of a taste of it and I was close enough friends and colleagues with a lot of those guys of that era to know what that meant to them and, and what Boomer's culture was all about. The head coach at that time was the great Barry Barnes. So, um, you know, it was, it was tough, but, um, you know, it's something that's, that's very important to anybody that, you know, that's gone through that type of process. Mm, absolutely. So did you suit up at all for the Boomers? Or? No, I didn't. I, I only got to camp. You know, I went to the camps and, uh, you know, when you get cut, it's never a good feeling. Um, mm. You know, I was pretty, I was pretty disappointed, but, you know, truth be told, I probably wasn't deserving of the spot anyway. So that's just the way it is. And, you know, the guys who went represent the country well. And I was, you know, I was proud of them, you know, despite me not making the team. Mm. That's awesome. And so obviously you uh, looked on with joy seeing them win the bronze medal just recently at the 2020 Olympics. And I had Shane Hill on the podcast and he was just overjoyed being part of that program for so long and hearing you talk about being part of it. So, um, yeah, what was that like when you saw those uh, scenes of them getting the, the medal around their necks? And I'm, I'm, I'm well, I mean, encouraging. there was so much. I mean, for me, I was just nervous going into it. Mm. But then I think midway through the second quarter, I think Patty Mills's body language and his old his whole attitude during that game, mm. you could see he had the mentality like, "I'm going to get us there, mm. and if I don't get us there, it will." all be on my back mm. and i like that mentality i like players mm. that are um that are unafraid to fail and to really go after it and patty put on one of the legendary all-time olympic performances i don't care if it was a bronze medal game like that was a tremendous game and it has to go down as one of the top 10 olympic performances in basketball of all time and you know he got what we had all waited for for so long Mm. Um, you got the bronze medal and, you know, that, that whole team is forever, you know, etched in a historic place in Australian basketball history. Mm. Absolutely. And 
to go to the next level, obviously, I believe we've got the players to do it. It's only a few years away now. So, but you look at what Josh Giddey's performances in the NBA, they've been phenomenal. Um, you know, hopefully Ben Simmons is a part of that. Do you think they can take that next step and get that gold medal? I don't think so. Uh, look, if the American team sends their top team over, and keep in mind, that was not America's best team they sent mm, over. True. You know, there was no Curry. You know, Steph Curry goes over, it changes that thing entirely. Mm. Um, look, a lot of guys were left behind, and that's no disrespect to the other countries, but I just have to be realistic about it. You know, um, Durant was probably the, the really only true great that went. There were a lot of guys left be- left behind, and I think it's going to always be tough over the course of two weeks to knock off an American team. And, you know, while it can happen, it's very, very, very unlikely. Mm. Uh, See, so here we go. Maybe yeah. an element of luck, but uh, let's yeah. dive back into your career. And you meant, we talked about Shane Hill, and you obviously uh, shared the screen with him on the basketball yeah. show. And yeah. uh, so we an episode last night, and... Um, as I've been watching that, I might be reading into a little bit more, but I see a healthy rivalry between you two, even when you're debating. Oh, and that yeah, I was going to say, was he one of your rivals when you are playing? And if not... Of course. Well, I've, you know, I've known Shane for 31 years. Wow. And, you know, I, I, I can't even remember how many times we've played against each other. Mm. I can't remember how many nights we've had out with each other. Mm. I can't remember how many basketball disagreements we've had. <laughs> Uh, you know, and that's healthy, you know, yeah. like that's the only way that you can learn is by embracing someone else's perspective, mm-hmm. not being defensive about it. I don't agree with all of his basketball philosophies. He doesn't agree. He doesn't agree with all of mine, but mm-hmm. you know, when you strip it all back, it's about one thing, trying to be your best every day. Mm-hmm. And now we're in a position where we're trying to help others be their best every day it's not about us we're trying to get better as coaches mm-hmm. we're trying to be better as media people we're trying to be objective trying to evaluate the game properly so that you know this process this this media thing is about education mm-hmm. it's about enlightening mm-hmm. and it's about entertaining yeah you know you've got to have an element of all three and i think shane has always done a good job of that throughout his career now he takes on another another um another task with coaching the Sydney flames mm. and, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see how he goes there. I'm sure he's, mm. he's, he's very excited for it. Obviously uh, he gets a chance to coach his daughter. So I'm, I'm keen to see how he goes, but I think he'll have, he'll have his team revved up and ready to go. Absolutely. And uh, obviously uh, it's going to be exciting to see the WNBL season and NBL season starting. We'll come to that in a moment because I want to touch yeah. on the NBL with you, but um, just uh, going back to what you spoke about in terms of, Differing opinions. You got me thinking about the importance because um, this podcast is about leadership as well, and we dive into some of life virtues. And yes. being a coach yourself, um, I find from a leadership point of view and the opportunities I've had to lead in different settings, you need to embrace different opinions. I think some people that are so focused on their philosophies or their way of life, they miss out on potential other opportunities that may be on the horizon. So I guess from a coaching point of view, that's why you have assistant coaches because you bring in different philosophies. So from a coaching point of view or a player point of view, how important is it and a leadership point of view to be open to different perspectives and, and take them on board, um, particularly if you want to succeed in anything? Well, and look, everyone's background is different, but mm. you know, my playing background was 
a person who made a lot of the on-court decisions. I had the ball in my hands a lot. So, you know, I had a high um, input into how well the team did or how poorly the team did. And, you know, that drives a lot of, you know, egocentric thinking. And I think one of the big, one of the big changes I made as a coach, I realized, I remember the day um, I prepared my team. This is about five or six years ago. I prepared my team to play a certain strategy against the pick and roll. And we were getting blasted in the first half on that pick and roll. And my ego was like, stay with it, Derek, stay with it. And I remember being in the halftime and change room. And I was like, you know what? It's not working. Come up with something else. You got to swallow it and admit to yourself right here that what you have planned for during the week isn't working. Come up with another plan. And we did that. We got back in the game and we won the game. And I think that was a big lesson to me to suppress ego for the betterment of what's, you know, for the betterment of the team or in what I do now, what's best for the individual player. So, you know, I think it's a healthy lesson. Coaches that get around with a lot of ego and continually want to think that it's about them, you know, they'll probably produce uneven results Mm. or eventually we'll find the going really tough. And um, that's probably the biggest lesson I've learned to date post post playing career. Mm. That's awesome. Um, Yeah. Take a lot out of that. And uh, also from a leadership point of view, because obviously in your time playing, you did come across like a leader on court, obviously the point guard, it's part of the position in many ways. And um, I was part of a conference recently and, and learned a lot from this uh, leader in the States called Craig Groeschel. You may not have heard of him, but he's a non-for-profit leader. He's a pastor. Yep. Um, but he speaks a lot about leadership. And um, one of the things that he spoke about at this conference I was listening to, I'll just quote him, and it dives yep. into the more challenging and harder times in life, which we all go through. Obviously, we speak about the championships or the you know the scoring champions, the NBL, NBL MVPs that you're a part of. But obviously, everyone goes through hardships, particularly in your career in general, but particularly now with COVID. But he says, good leader, a good leader plans for unforeseen challenges. A great leader plans for unexpected opportunities. And he goes on to say, don't just plan for unforeseen challenges. Create margin for opportunities that you can't predict. And I love that because it speaks about persevering through the pain and embracing the pain and hardships in life, knowing there's going to be growth, knowing there's going to be opportunities. So... Translating that into a, a sporting environment, whether that's an individual um, or a team environment, no doubt teams go through challenges. Obviously, they're setting the, the target of a championship, but it doesn't always go to plan. So as a coach, as a player, has there been times in your life where you've gone through the challenges but persevered and seen growth at the end of you know, going through the pain? Or uh, is that something that resonates with you as well from a sporting background? Dan, I I have some regrets in terms of how I handled adversity during my career. Mm. Um, and look, you know, 15, 20 years ago, we just weren't as well educated on how to deal with so many different issues in our life. Mm. Um, and, you know, I was really, really, really hard on myself when we lose games. You know, I'd lock myself away and go in a shell and just be angry at myself. Not necessarily so much a teammates because I was really, you know, I become really introspective when things don't go well. But I wish I wish I would have been more well versed in how to handle adversity, Mm. because I think it 
my inability to handle it um, or not that I didn't handle it well, I just probably didn't handle it properly. There was a better way to do it, which maybe could have raised my floor from day to day. And that's what we're trying to avoid is those dips down. That's what we're talking about, whether it's a dip in emotions or a dip in performance. And, you know, I think I had so many emotional dips as a result of the game. That's all it caused it. Yeah. You know, my life was so focused on wins and losses. Mm. And, you know, there's look, that's just the way it is. Yeah, but it's natural. Yeah. Yeah. I just wish that I would have had better strategies to deal with losses instead of just locking myself in my house and beating myself up for 12 to 15 hours until till I actually had to leave the house again. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I think athletes, you know, and I'm not saying people don't still handle it that way, but I would hope that one would understand that that's probably not the best way to go about it. It doesn't mean you have to be carefree and accepting of losses and so forth, mm -hmm. but there's a way to process that without becoming so insular mm -hmm. and, and, and self-defeating. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. hundred percent. That's, that's great. And I've had Cal Bruton on the podcast. I've had, um, Tracy Williams, they all work for Charity Bounce, and it's something they're trying yes. to instill in young players and athletes that resilience and overcoming adversity. So yeah. that's really good. But um, I know for you know, playing at the level you did, part of the adversity sometimes is overcoming injuries. I remember you had a massive injury when you were playing for the West Sydney Razorbacks, and uh, particularly after you made the grand final that year. But as a big Razorbacks fan, I did miss me not to go into that career. And for me, looking yeah. back on your career, I imagine being part of that organization, the team you had, John Reilly, Simon Dwight, some of these names that were part of that team yourself. Uh, don't want to put words in your mouth, but I can imagine that you look back on those times fondly playing for all those seasons with the West Sydney Razorbacks. I loved it. And I think, um, you know, being the first player ever signed to the franchise was yeah. something that I was, you know, very honored by. Mm. And, I thought we established something pretty quickly. Myself, Jr., Dwighty. Um, you know, I thought that was a good little nucleus. Bruce Bolden. That was a nice nucleus for us to build from. And you know, then we added McKinnon. We started adding a few pieces here and there. Willie Farley. Phil. Willie. Phil Handy before Willie Farley. Right. Yeah. Phil was a part of the team that went mm -hmm. to the grand final, and we lost to Willie Farley in Adelaide. But, you know, the, uh, we got taken down ultimately by the Cannery Bulldogs salary cap scandal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Has, had that scandal not occurred, you know, we, I probably would have never left West Sydney. Yeah. But at that point, it, put, um, it, 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 it brought our finances under greater scrutiny. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then that was kind of, I think the year after I left and came to Brisbane, they still made the grand final against Sydney. Yeah. But things had started to unravel, and it was never quite the same again. But, you know, I, I love the time at West Sydney. There were great people. It was good that we got to partner with um, Canterbury-Bankstown mm. Football Club because I was able to meet some great people there. Um, again, I love I I loved football, so I loved the NRL. And it was great to be around those guys. They had some great players back then, you know, mm. Stephen Price, Hazem Al-Masri, uh, Ricky Stewart, Bradley Clyde, mm -hmm. a young, a young Jonathan Thurston, yeah. a young um, Sonny Bill, mm -hmm. you know, just big, big time Willie Mason. Mm -hmm. 
mm. you know, big time, big time athletes. And we were training with those guys in the weight room wow. on the regular. So it was, a, it was a really good, it was a really good feeling. Mm. Um, yeah. And I, you know, and I love living in Sydney. Mm. Sydney is one of the, um, I mean, I really enjoy Brisbane now, but Sydney is truly one of the most beautiful cities of the world. And um, it was a great time to be there right before the Olympics. It was, it was fantastic. You, you know. Yeah, absolutely, mate. Yeah, it was a great time, the Olympics. That's the, I keep saying on the podcast, that was a time I made it my life ambition to play professionally. Didn't quite get there, but that was a great time in Sydney at that time. But um, I'm glad you brought that up because I got to ask you what your thoughts were as to why it did unravel because it was such a great organisation. And, you know, as a Razorbacks fan, I jumped ship from the Kings to the Razorbacks and then, um, you know, I was disappointed to see how it all ended. But do you think there's room for the next NBL expansion team to, you know, maybe investigate whether the Western Sydney markets and markets to go back into. That was great support for the Razorbacks. Do you think the next team or the next step for the NBL is to maybe look at a, uh, re-establishing that rivalry in Sydney? Possibly, or maybe, you know, maybe the Hunter region. Mm-hmm. I'm just not in touch with the basketball down there mm-hmm. enough, but I would think somewhere in New South Wales there should be a space for another NBL team. Hmm. Um, you know, maybe the Hunter region. I mean, it's, you know, it, it seems to be a growing area. They have a good, they have a great basketball legacy down there. Yeah. There's love for the sport. I mean, it's say so I'd kind of have to weigh that up. What's more viable, like a Western Sydney or a Hunter region team. Yeah, it's, right. it's a tough one, you know, and with the Kings, you know, or do you just give Sydney to the Kings mm. and let's go Sydney, Wollongong or Canberra? Mm. Certainly Canberra must be coming, you know, be getting close to having their own NBL team. So, I mean, I think there are, there are some good alternatives, mm. um, but I think there is space in one of those three regions for another NBL team. And the, and the league's doing a good job. They're not, um, Larry Kesselman isn't trying to expand too quickly. I think he's on a nice measured approach in terms of expansion yeah. and bringing Tasmania in this year has been really good. And, you know, the league's growing at probably the rate that it should. Yeah. That's awesome. Is there any, uh, look at the league now, do you sort of kind of hope that you were, you know, could have played under the era? I mean, you did play in such a great era in the 90s. No, no, I love the era I played in. No, yeah. everything was organic. Everything was natural. There was no... There was no hype about it. Like it was all real. And um, I would never no. It was yeah. it was amazing. Yeah, it was a great era. And uh, obviously you finished your career with the Bullets where it all yeah. started. Um, what was that like, just finishing your career at the team you started with? Well, I was very fortunate that I got to play for um, a very good coach and Joey Wright. Um, he understood me as a person. I thought – he managed and coached me exactly the way I exactly the way I needed at that time in my career and probably would have been a good coach for me at other parts of my career as well. But I thought those final three seasons, I exceeded my own expectations. Um, and, you know, we did a good job up here in Brisbane, kind of set the platform the year after I left. They obviously went on and had a fantastic season, one of the best seasons in NBL history. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the three seasons we're great here. Um, you know, I got to play with some, with some really good players and it was kind of fitting to uh, finish it where it all, where it all began. Um, I got to play till 39, you know, that's, 
ex, ex, exceptionally rare, mm. um, especially for a, a, a small a small body point guard. Like you just don't see that that often. So and I and and I thought, in my opinion, my game hadn't declined to the point where I look at look back at any games and I'm like, oh, turn that off. <laughs> no, I think I still from the games that I I saw, I was still playing at a respectable level. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Were I remember you. Still playing well, even in those years. And um, as I said, the NBL is upon us this weekend. It'd be amiss of me not to ask your thoughts, get some of your tips for the upcoming yeah. season, if that's okay, mate. But um, yeah. obviously, you talked a lot about it on the basketball show last night. But um, obviously, it's going to be a big season. Uh, new team, as you said, Tasmania, Jack Jumpers. Got some great players coming back to the league. Uh, Matthew Delavadova's back. Um, Drew Reef with the Illawarra Hawks. Yep. Um, obviously, the... The bronze medalists, some great imports. I'm really looking forward to seeing how Jeremiah Martin goes at the New Zealand Breakers. Has some NBA experience. So great players coming back. But who are you looking forward to watching from a, a team, but also a player point of view this year? Well, this might sound strange, but I'm really looking forward to Bryce Cotton. I want to see in a different system how he handles things. I want to see what Perth really go with. Mm-hmm. Look, everybody's trying different stuff in the regular season. I want to see how Perth play offensively because even though Trevor Gleason was criticized for being boring and running an antiquated offense, that thing worked. And it worked really well for Bryce Cotton. He got touches when he needed. His usage rate was good. Everything just worked really well. And I'm, I'm interested to see how Scott Morrison – Mm-hmm. handles that on the offensive end if they continue to work with the same efficiency. Mm-hmm. So, you know, obviously we know what Bryce's talent is like, yeah. but I, I'm just keen to see him operate in, in a different environment. Um, there are two guys down in Adelaide that I work with, one more so than the other, Mojave King, yeah. who I've worked with for a number of years. I'm, I'm very eager to see what Mo does this year. He already looks more mature, and he's still only 19 years old. Um, I think he's going to have a really good year. I think CJ is the type of personality in terms of a coach that Mo can thrive under. Mm. And then, of course, I was able to spend a couple of weeks working with Kai Soto, mm. who I, I rate highly. Yeah. And I have no doubt in my mind that Kai is going to be in the NBA um, wow. probably in a couple of years. It's, it's harder with bigs. They need to, you know, get everything synced mm. up with the neurons to the limbs, you know, <laughs> it's seven foot three. He is really nimble on his feet. Um, he's shown glimpses in the blitz. You know, he can step out and shoot the three ball. He handles it. He's a good decision maker. He can put it on the deck and go by some people. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I think Kai and Mo are very exciting prospects. And I'm, 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 I'm glad that they're in, in the space down there in Adelaide where they might be able to do some damage. Absolutely. And you mentioned CJ, you mentioned the new coach, Scott Morrison, not the PM. But there's been a huge merry-go-round of coaches, hasn't there? Like, I've never remembered this in my time watching the game. But Chase Buford at the Kings, Scott Morrison, as you said, CJ Bruton gets a crack in Adelaide. Adam Ford's gone up to Cairns. Uh, James Duncan at Brisbane Bullets. So, And even Gorge in his second season. Like, it's incredible the coaches that are coming to the league now. But who are you looking forward to seeing, um, I guess, really show their credentials this year and any of those play or those coaches do you think will uh, succeed? I'm always interested to see how the American coaches adapt to the Australian NBL when they haven't been around it a lot. Mm-hmm. So Chase Buford, for example, I'm, I'm keen to see how he does. Morrison as well. Um, Duncan, 
not so much because he spent some time here. He he's kind of got a feel for how it works. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He understands the refereeing. He knows the nuances um, of how the game is called and just the little things that it takes time. I thought Will Weaver mm. overall did a pretty good job, but I thought he botched the substitutions. Mm. I thought he was trying to substitute too much like an NBA season yeah. as opposed to an MBL season. But the Kings made it to a grand final that year. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then he 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 catapulted into the rock onto the Rockets mm. bench. So no one can really fault him. Mm. So he was probably the exception because over the you know 30, 30 plus years I've been associated with the league, there have been a lot of guys come out here from America who never really grasped the fiber of the Australian NBL mm. and don't show um the level of coaching that their talent suggested they would have or their pedigree suggested they would have. So, you know, I'm always keen to check it out and see how it goes. I think there's nothing wrong with an American coach, obviously, but I think he had to been around. So I think Scott Roth Mm. down in Tasmania, I think he has an upper hand on Morrison. He has an upper hand on Buford. Mm. And um, yeah, I I think it's really exciting. I'm into that now being a coach, you know? Of course. And just on the coaches, I mean, it may be, you know, a storm in a teacup type thing, but I've got a bit of concern about, you know, the team's sort of trying to bring in a coach as opposed to developing Australian coaches. It doesn't seem to be that many Aussie coaches uh, potentially coming through. I could be wrong, but do you think there's a concern there with uh, teams sort of looking overseas to bring someone in? Again, New Zealand uh, with Dan Shamir, I think his name is. Um, You know, bringing these coaches in as opposed to maybe looking to some of the Australian options as well. I think there are ample coaches right here um, who have been around the league for a very long time that would do a fine job. Mm. And I agree with you. Um, Sometimes these teams are trying to make too much of a splash Mm. and compromising perhaps a more successful season Mm. um, with a a lesser known um, coach or maybe a lesser experienced coach who's who's just around and ready to grind it out. And the other thing that I don't know how it works with when the American coach in the offseason, like I would want my coach to be here year round. I need my coach to commit to developing players in the offseason. So I'm sure that's that's different based on each contract. But I think that's the advantage that that could be um, gained from having a coach who's going to be here all the whole year round. Absolutely. And it just reflecting on my time, a couple more questions just on this. Um, you know, when I was coming through and playing, I guess with, I've mentioned to you the West Sydney Razorbacks and being part of the development squad, you had like Gordon McLeod, Mark Watkins, Australian guys, like yeah. they're around in the off season and they're investing in the grassroots as well. Whereas some of these other guys coming in, I feel like their focus is on the NBL and that team and maybe neglecting some of the, the grassroots yeah. level. So you see concerns with that as well? Yeah. Well, I mean, in Brisbane, it doesn't bother me too much because then that opens up the market for my business so I can yeah, continue true. to attack the grassroots. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. But um, no, I, 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 I hear you 100%. Um, so up here, James Duncan, actually, that's something that he really likes. So he's in there grinding it out with the players, yeah. developing them. But what he does in the offseason, you know, that's that's the big one, you know, yeah, like yeah. these guys, 
Um, the NBL guys need to be working in the offseason. You know, everyone's doing it. Your NBA guys are getting on the getting on the floor and working with their guys in the offseason. And, and it's it's not quite a done thing yet in the NBL from the player's perspective, but it needs to be done more yeah. um, in the years to come. Yeah, that's good. But uh, just finishing up with the, the NBL, um, I guess, you know, Melbourne United, they're going to be up there. Perth Wildcats, they're always there. We talk about Sydney Kings, but um, who's your tip for the title this time around? Do you think Melbourne can do it again or uh, do you think it'll be someone else? This is, a, this is a tough one this year. <laughs> this is really, really tough. And you've got Phoenix um, as well. They're playing, playing well. I know. I, I'm, not, I'm not quite convinced with, Sid, with Sydney or Southeast Melbourne yet. Mm-hmm. You, you know, I think there's a lot of the high ceiling and there's a low floor. Mm-hmm. Um, Perth and Melbourne United, I just feel like they have that institutional success. Mm-hmm. And I think with Perth, it's just the culture. Mm-hmm. And with Melbourne United, I just think Vickerman understands the competition. And he's going to coach that team. And so I, I think both of those teams are ahead of everyone else for those reasons. Mm. Yeah. Now, you got some teams like, like Brisbane's loaded with guys on the perimeter. Mm-hmm. You know, I think people are sleeping on the quality of Brisbane's perimeter. You know, one through three, they've got a lot of talent. Mm. Um, like I said with Sydney, if some of these guys who are kind of unknown NBL quantities – raise up you know they it could take them up you know if is if xavier cooks makes a leap to an all-star uh five type player you know if he can get his numbers like to 18 19 points a game mm-hmm. 10 12 points a rebound uh 12 10 to 12 rebounds a game to go with martin who we know is going to contribute then all of a sudden sydney is really tough mm-hmm. um new zealand i have no idea what they're going to be mm-hmm. I feel bad for them because I think COVID is going to just bring L's to them. I think the way they have to navigate, it's just tough. Mm-hmm. Being away from home is just hard, man. I think it just eats at you. Yeah. So, you know, that's, like, that's kind of how I see it. Adelaide, you know, Adelaide have some pro basketball players down there. They have probably the most professional offensive player in the game in Daniel Johnson. And they're going to win their share of games at home, you know. So uh, this season is really exciting. Mm, Absolutely, I love the NBL's uh, slogan: "Next level." I think it's going to be next level this season, and very much looking forward to it. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, Derek Rucker, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. I loved hearing about your story, your career, and some of your insights. So thank you for joining us on the More Than a Game podcast. Thank you, Dan. A pleasure to have anytime. I'm welcome to come back. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the More Than a Game podcast. If you enjoy this episode, please feel free to leave a review, click the subscribe button, and for more episodes and content, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts or via the Podbean app. Our website is also gamemorethan.podbean.com. We hope you can join us for another episode of the More Than a Game podcast.